Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. So, how is your memorization of Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 coming along? Some of you grunt, some of you groan, some of you now remember I suggested it last week. Some of you are working toward it. Next week, we will say the first four verses together, all right? So, it's okay if you speak softly and need to do your own, the version that you carry around, but we will say together the ESV version from three, four, five, and six, all three of the, all four of those next week, all right? Here's a helpful way to memorize. Apart from doing it one verse a day, if it helps you, if you're more visual, it is helpful if you can write it out on a piece of paper, all right? You write it out on a piece of paper, and then you write it out again and leave out seven or eight key words. And then write it again and leave out 15 or 20 key words. And then write it again and, write, and keep writing it until the only thing in there is blessed, all right? And you just... and you. That's a helpful way that I have, uh, even with children, just marking it out and saying it and seeing it. If you see it in front of you, you can see where that word was. Or you can, they have these fancy things called computers that makes doing that a lot faster. Where you can print one out that's full and then you can mark out others and, and, uh, and do it that way. But whatever you do, I mean, th these are words that would be wonderful and beneficial for us to all have. Uh, memorized. And so I'm going to keep encouraging you to do that, uh, and we'll get to uh, your test next week. Um, so there are doctrines in the Christian faith that seem as though they are magnets of passionate dis discussion, centers of heated debate. Uh, and sadly, places where Christians sometimes divide. Not just in understanding, but divide in fellowship. 
One such doctrine is the doctrine of election, of God's sovereign, free choosing to save his people. Doctrine expressed in verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. The specificity with which Paul says he chose us is where people stumble. Not that he chose to save, not that he chose to save through Jesus, but that he chose to save his particular people through the work of Jesus. This is where the difficulty comes in. It's a doctrine that was actually the subject of many a late-night discussion uh, at the Baptist Collegiate Ministry at the University of Memphis when I was a student. My guess is, if college students haven't changed all that much, the, conver- the, the dialogue continues to this day, uh, late at night with pizza or Taco Bell or something else that they will learn not to eat that late at night eventually. It's a doctrine that actually gets some people quite angry. It's a doctrine about which many are confused. It's a doctrine that some come to embrace quite quickly. And it's a doctrine that for others, for many in fact, it takes time. That it's more like a journey than it is the flip of a switch in that sense. It was a journey for me. A journey that didn't actually begin until I was in college and didn't complete until I was in seminary. There was much wrestling, much praying, much reading, much studying, much coming to grips with what is it that the Bible teaches. My prayer, actually, in coming to this today is that by God's grace, that understanding this text, wherever you are on that journey, that you will move forward in it. Some of us will hear this for the very first time today, and your initial response may be to kick against it. I would encourage you to keep studying, keep praying, keep wrestling, keep asking the Lord to help. For some, we are in the place where we are in the midst of the wrestling, and we just are not coming to grips with what the Bible teaches just yet. And I pray that through our studying this, we'll be farther along at the end than we are at the beginning. Or maybe this will be that step at which the Lord, by His grace, helps you to embrace what it is that the Scripture teaches. That you gain understanding that you hadn't had before. And for those of us who have embraced what it is that this verse points to, what Paul is saying... May God, by His grace, help us to enjoy and relish and praise in response. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Before we get to any kind of outline, I just want you to note the two words that begin in the ESV that begin verse 4, even as. These words are used in the Bible to introduce a causal phrase, okay? To introduce a cause. 
So last week we saw that we bless God because He first blessed us. But now what Paul wants to do is, is ask the question, why is it that God has blessed us? What is foundational to that? And the answer is, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Why did God bless us? Because He chose us for blessing. When you put that together, you have the main idea we're going to focus on today, which is that we bless God because He chose us. We bless God. We praise Him. We adore Him. We speak well of Him. We sing to Him. We lift Him up. We magnify Him. We glorify Him. Because He, in His grace, has freely chosen to save us. So I want to think about these words under three headings. First, by thinking about three types of election. Two, descriptions of election. And then three, questions about election. Okay? So three types of election. Two, descriptions of election. Three, questions about election. So first, three types of election. If you're unfamiliar with that word election, immediately our uh, democratic system may come to mind, uh, in which the people are invested with authority to make a choice about who governs them, right? So we are given the opportunity uh, in various uh, uh, cycles, two-year, four-year, six-year, to decide to choose who it is that represents us in the government, to to choose the ones. We are invested with that authority to do that. Election in the Bible is different. The power and the authority in the choosing is God's and not ours. So if we just think very generally, God's election is rooted in and is a function of His sovereignty, His power and His authority. So it's a power and an authority not given to Him by us. It is an authority that is inherent in who He is as God. The same God who has said, let there be light with authority has said many other things that come to be with authority. Okay? Does that make sense? So election is rooted in the sovereignty of God. Election is the, actually the exertion of God's sovereignty to choose to save His people for His purposes. Now, for the purposes of three types of election, we're going to take save out of there. God's election, very generally speaking, is God choosing certain people for certain purposes. Okay? Three types. You ready? The first is what is called theocratic election or historical election. It's, why, it's how we refer to the fact that God chose Israel as a nation. They are His chosen people. Right? So He is meant to be their ruler. He is meant to be their sovereign. He is meant to be their king. This is why He speaks so poorly when the people say, give us a king like all the other nations. And God's response is, um, I'm supposed to be king, right? Because he had chosen them out of all the nations of the world. But that kind of choosing 
is not, being born an Israelite does not guarantee individual salvation. That's why Paul writes in Romans 9, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Well, who are Abraham's offspring then, Paul? Well, Galatians 3 tells us those, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So that's what we mean by theocratic election. God chose a people for himself. Second type is vocational election. From within Israel, God, the Bible uses the same kind of language to talk about how God chose the Levites out of Israel in Deuteronomy 18, 5, to serve him, to stand before him and minister. So out of this chosen people, there are a chosen people, so to speak, who are meant to serve uh, in, in the priesthood. All right? And actually, an even better example of this kind of vocational choosing is Judas. Judas himself, in John chapter 7, ver, John, John chapter 6, verse 70, Jesus looks at his apostles, the ones who are called apostles, including Judas still at this point, and says, Did not I choose you? Same word as in Ephesians 1. Did I not choose you, and yet one of you is the devil? And that becomes clearer that there is this distinguishing of choosing in Jesus' mind when you get to John 13, verse 18. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. Okay? So you, you wrinkle your eyebrow at that point, don't you? I mean, there are several chapters between those, but you put those two things side by side, and you say, wait a second, Jesus, did, did you choose Judas or did you not choose Judas? And Jesus would say, yes. Yes, I did. Yes, I didn't. Because he was chosen for a particular purpose. He was chosen to be one of the apostles. He was chosen to be the friend from Psalms that is the one, the close one to him who would betray him. But, this same, but Jesus would say of this same one who was chosen and yet not chosen, it would have been better for him if he had never been born. So we have theocratic election, vocational election, and then the one that we are most familiar with, salvific election, meaning it's related to salvation. God chooses to save some. That's what we have here in Ephesians 1.4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. We know because the us that Paul refers to, he describes in lots of other places as those that God has taken from the deadness of trespasses to life in Christ. These are the ones who are called saints. They are the, these are the ones who have believed in him. These are the ones who are sealed with the Holy Spirit. The, these are the ones that are the objects of God's salvation. That is us. And it's taught in several other places. It's not just here. I mean, after Judas is gone, Jesus looks at the eleven and says, You didn't choose me. I chose you to go and bear fruit. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. We are called, uh, put on therefore as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And then a list of things that we are to put on. In 1 Thessalonians 1.4, he says, we, we know that you are dearly loved, for he has chosen you. And more and more and more. But my goal here is not to pile on a bunch of texts, but just don't think that this is limited to Ephesians 1. 
This is a pervasive theme. So in 1 Peter 2, one last text, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. This idea of possession, of relationship, is reflected in Paul's words when he says, he chose us. That's actually in the middle voice. It means he chose us for himself. That's what that means. He chose us for himself. He didn't just choose us for any old thing. He chose us for himself. So if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ today, if you're sitting here trusting in Christ, the Bible says that fundamentally at the root of it all is not your choice to repent and believe, though you really did repent and believe. The fundamental choice lies with God. Okay? And we will come back to this. That's where the three questions... We're going to get to three questions. I, boy, I've labored over how many questions you could actually try to ask and answer in a one setting. So uh, I'm, if, we need to, if you have more questions and you want to interact one-to-one, please come along and let's do that. Let's study the Bible together. Let's look at what the Scripture says. For it's good for all of us. But if you're a believer today, fundamentally it's because He chose you in Him before the foundation of the world. So, it's as if, whatever it is, think of the story of you coming to faith in Jesus. I love hearing stories about how people come to faith in Jesus. Think of how the story. You come to that moment and there's a door before you. And on that door, you put a sign because it says, into Christ, right? And you put a sign on it that says, I am choosing to repent and believe, right? I am choosing to repent and believe. And you walk through that door and you are in a new room. You are in a new place. You're in a place where your sin is forgiven. You're a place where you have eternal life, where you're marked by the Spirit. All of these wonderful, glorious things that you would put that sign on the door and said, I am choosing. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. And praise the Lord that you did. And then you look over the shoulder at the door into Christ and it says, I am chosen before the foundation of the world. Oh, dear friend, if, if you're examining Christianity, if you are new to uh, the, 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 the idea of Jesus coming and dying for us, if you have not yet trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, believe me when I say that, that, that these things are not meant to say, well... I guess I don't have to do anything. Bro, you do. Sister, you do. All right, friend, you do. God commands all men everywhere to repent. What this says is that when you repent, it will be because of God's prior work. So you know why? So no one can boast before him. Oh, yeah, well, I did it at four years old. I've never heard anybody say that. I'm just saying, there's no boasting. The one who is, the one who has, you know, that tremendous knock you over, down and out, in the gutters of life type testimony, chosen before the foundation of the world. The one who grew up in the Christian home and didn't even know where the gutter of life was and they still don't know where it is. It's something that appears to be on the news only. But they're trusting in Christ, chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. 
There is no boasting for the Christian. Because if you're a Christian, it's because God has made you a Christian. I've told you about my Roman Catholic friend Paul who came to me and said, my girlfriend will not marry me unless I am a Christian. Can you please make me a Christian? And I looked at him and I said, we don't do that here. I said, I don't make people Christians. God makes people Christians. But why don't we study how God makes people Christians and we'll pray that God saves you. Six or eight weeks into reading the uh, Gospel of John together, he comes to me. He had gone to an evangelistic training course with his girlfriend, not because he wanted to be trained, but because his girlfriend was going to be there. So he goes to be with her, and he brings in this tract, and he shows it to me. He says, what do you think about this tract? I said, well. I said, what do you think about this tract? And it has one of these prayers on the back, you know, like many tracts do. I said, read that prayer on the back out loud. Just read it out loud, and I want to ask you a question. So he read it out loud. I said, do you believe that? If, if you were to pray, would you pray that? He said, I do. Jesus died for me. And he began to confess his faith, not in the repetition of a sinner's prayer, but just in gushing about what it is that God had opened his eyes to. And Paul became a Christian. And at the end of a service, about six months later, just at the end of a service, we closed the service, those two stepped forward, and we married them before the church. It was great. It's a great day. But if you're not a believer, don't... Look, you, you, you must. You, you must. And when you do, and if you do, know this. Both sides of that door are true. One is foundational. One is the implication of what happened in eternity past, but both are true. Three types of election. Two descriptions of election. How does Paul describe this choosing? Well, just there are a couple of phrases here in the verse that help. Before the foundation of the world is the first phrase, which speaks to the eternal nature of election. Okay, so consider the phrase in a couple of other texts. In Revelation 13, 8, we have this phrase. It appears, I'm not going to read the whole context, just where it appears. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. This is a description in Revelation 13 of non-Christians, people whose names aren't written in the book of life. Something that John the Apostle records for us happens before the foundation of the world. Okay? 1 Peter 1 says that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God. When it says that God foreknew, the Father, fore, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, it doesn't mean God just had figured out what Jesus was going to do. He just knew about him. He just knew the events that were going to take place. He knew the kind of character he'd have. He knew it because he planned it before the foundation of the world. And the same is true, dear friends, of God choosing us before we were born, 
before Jesus came to die and rise again, before Abraham was called, before Cain killed Abel, before Adam and Eve fell, before Adam and Eve were created, before anything came into existence, before God said, let there be light, He said, let them be mine. And He said it of every single person He would save. By grace, through faith, who would come to the door and stamp, I am choosing to follow Jesus, and would look back over their shoulder and see, I am chosen before the foundation of the world. Every single one of them. Now another thing is that this, that this phrase points to, before the foundation of the world, is that God's election, God's choice to save us is Unconditional. This is not like gym class in middle school and kickball teams are being picked, all right? Because in middle school kickball, you get sized up for your potential skill, your size, how quickly can you move, all those kinds of things. You know, I've played with that guy before. Do not choose him, all right? I mean, that, yes, they were pointing at me, all right? But this is not how choosing works. There is There is no condition in us that caused God to choose us, which is Fantastic news. It is awesome news that there is no condition in us which contributed to God's choice. Why? Because if it were up to a condition, none of us would be believers. Because the psalmist says there is none who does good, not even one. And it's quoted in Romans 3. Well, I do all kinds of good deeds. Surely God saw what a good person I am, and He said, i got to have that guy on my team. Well, our righteous deeds are like polluted garments before Him. Yeah, but I just, I'm a pretty intellectual person. I mean, God had to know that I would figure this out. So, the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. If your kids come on Wednesday night, this is what they're going to start thinking about this week. That we were made to be law keepers, but we're all law breakers. Now, I did not get the big idea right, so I do get no points for Kids Store on that. However, that's the essential big idea. Dear friends, not even our faith merits God choosing. Because while your faith really is yours, while you really do believe in Jesus, while you really have embraced the gospel, faith, the capacity to even do that is a gift. For by grace you have been saved through faith and This is not your own doing. The closest antecedent to this in that text is faith. Charles Spurgeon once said, It is a good thing God chose me before I was born because He surely would not have afterwards. Can you say amen to that? I mean, that is so true. 
He chose us before the foundation of the world. The second phrase is that we should be holy and blameless before Him. God chose us with a purpose that we would be holy and blameless. Two words that are the sa- two sides of the same coin. Holy meaning moral purity, blameless meaning guilt-free. All right? That we would be morally pure and guiltless. And you know what none of us are? Morally pure and guiltless. That is why the phrase in him is so crucial to this choosing. He chose us in him. In Christ, by Christ's death and resurrection, by the power of His Holy Spirit, Jesus makes us what we are not and can never be in ourselves. So in Christ, think about this, we are declared holy and blameless. Jesus took the guilt of our sin on the cross. He paid the price for it completely so that we are, when we are in Him by faith, we are forgiven and we are declared righteous in His sight. But not only are we declared holy and blameless in Christ, we actually, we are becoming holy and blameless in Christ. So that as Christians, we are called to live holy lives. We are called to live blameless lives. In, in 2 Peter, 2 Peter, 2 Peter 1, <coughs> excuse me, Peter lists a whole host of things that you are to add to your faith. Virtue, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. And then he comes to this conclusion. The final call is in chapter 1, verse 10, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. In other words, add all, keep, you strive, you work, you fight to add love and affection and all of these things. And as you do, do you know what happens? Your calling and election is confirmed. As we grow spiritually, our election is confirmed. God's choice of us to make us holy and blameless is confirmed. Conversely, if we are not seeking to grow in these things, dear friends, we cannot have assurance that we are in Christ. We cannot have assurance that He has actually set His love on us. Why? Because He set His love on us, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. It's not a doctrine of sinlessness. It's a doctrine of progressively sinning less. The truth of election is confirmed by spiritual growth. It is not a substitute for it. Those who say, it doesn't matter how I live because the Bible says I was chosen in Him, don't understand the whole teaching of the Bible. It's just too narrow. The doctrine of election is confirmed by your spiritual growth. It is not a substitute for it. We're declared holy and blameless. We are becoming holy and blameless. And do you know what we will be? Take a wild guess. Holy and blameless. Well done, Brent. All right. That's what the Bible, that's what we just talk about as glorification. 1 John 3, 2, when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, the holy and blameless one, because we shall see Him as He is. So we are chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. 
we are chosen in him that we should be holy and blameless before him now three questions this is where we're going to finish because we're just limiting ourselves to this one verse we're trying at least three questions about election questions that I will make an initial run at and then if you want to discuss more it'd be, it's, it's, good, it's good for us to do that first question what about free will I mean, for some of you, maybe that's what immediately popped to mind when you asked that. I mean, aren't, don't we have the, the ability to, to freely choose, to choose to repent, to choose to believe, to choose to follow Jesus? In the realm of this question, most Christians are not prepared to deny God's sovereignty, okay? They're not prepared to say, well, God's not actually sovereign. God doesn't have the power to do anything He wants. They're not going to deny Psalm 1. 15, it says, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. The, the struggle focuses less on God's ability to choose, and it focuses more on man's inability. Do you mean we're really that bad off? Do you mean we are actually totally depraved? And even those who say that would say, well, you know, I know that sin has tainted me. I know that my good works earn nothing with God. I know that, 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 that my religious activity earns nothing with God. I know that my intellectual comprehension of biblical truth earns me nothing with God. But the idea that I, that, 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 that I didn't have the ability, that's a hard one. That's where people struggle. After all, is it what have pastors and evangelists been telling people? Repent and believe. We don't use this language here on purpose, but in lots of places, make a decision. Make a decision. Some will even phrase it like God's pulling on one arm and the devil's pulling on the other, and you've got to decide which way you're going to go. Now, dear friends, let me be clear. Your will is and must be engaged in coming to Jesus. You repent. You believe. You follow Jesus. And you must. Here's the problem. Our wills are inextricably tied to our hearts. Where is it that your words come from, Jesus? Words come from your heart. Where is it that your thoughts come from, Jesus? Come from your heart. Where is it that my actions come from, Jesus? Comes from your heart. We do what our heart wants. Do you know what the sinful heart wants? Sin. Rebellion. No submission. Let me give you a picture of this. One of my children loves sugar. I mean, they all do, but one really loves sugar. If you pricked that child now, uh, blood wouldn't necessarily come out. Syrup might, all right? So let's say that before this child, I put two tables. One has, is a bountiful supply of fruits and vegetables. One is a bountiful supply of cakes and cookies and candies. And I say, you are free to choose. 
You got to guess at which way he's going. I mean, is it, are you even wrestling with that? No. I know which table you would choose. I mean, come on. We don't have those tables anywhere. <laughs> Except at the members' meetings. He would go for the sugar. Why? Not because he's not free, but because he's bent toward sugar more than any other food group. That's just what he wants. And in a more serious and more permanent and more dangerous way, we are bent toward sin. So that no matter how many times I tell you, if you come to Jesus... You will be forgiven of sin and He will change your life and you will have eternal life and you will be right with God. My bent apart from God is to say, no. And that's all I want. That's what Romans 8 means. The mindset on the flesh cannot, 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 cannot please God. We can't straighten out our own bent. I mean, unlike my child who can decide one day, you know what, I better start eating some fruits and vegetables. What's actually happened? Well, his mind has changed, right? He's like, this is going to kill me, or, you know, I'm going to have on, you know, early onset diabetes or something, so I'm going to go for the fruits and vegetables. If you can hear me, I love you wherever you are. This is not a ploy. We let the doctor take care of that. But unlike him, you cannot change your own heart. That's why the condition of mankind is so desperate. Jeremiah 13, can, can the Ethiopian change his skin? Or the leopard changes spots? Well, then so can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. This is why the beauty of the new covenant is not, I will give you a new system of religion. It is not, I will lift some legal demands. It is not, hey, there's more freedom here. What is the beauty of the new covenant is that God says, I will give you a new heart. And as the moment that I have that new heart, what I want is Jesus. It, it, it needs, it's not like a seed that needs time to, you know, work under the ground. When you have a new heart, that's what you want right then, right there. If you want Jesus, if you want to please Jesus, if you want to serve Jesus, if you want to obey Jesus, it's because you have a new heart. Isn't that why you pray for your lost friends? Isn't that why you plead for your children? Because no matter how good a friend you are, you cannot change their heart. No matter how many right things you do as a parent, you cannot change that child's heart. There is no formula. There's no formula of formal instruction or informal instruction that guarantees a changed heart. 
This is why we plead with the Lord to do His work. This is why our first Sunday nights in prayer should become more and more contagious because we are praying. The last several months we've been praying for evangelistic efforts that our people are making in various arenas of life. Because we believe that if God does not intervene, nothing will happen. I became a Christian when I was 15 years old. And if you had asked me that night, how is it that you became a Christian? I'd say, well, I turned from my sin and I trusted in Jesus. And that's a right answer. And I entered into a house of faith, as it were, and... You know, it looks good in here. There's forgiveness in here, and there's freedom in here, and there's eternal life in here, and there's eternal joy and peace, and there's hope in the midst of suffering in here. And I'm standing on a floor that I believe is a concrete slab labeled my choice. And over the course of those four years from college into seminary, God showed me a door that I had never seen in my house. It took me downstairs I never knew about into a beautiful, awe-inspiring, fully furnished, luxurious, magnificent, glorious basement called election. All the while I thought I was standing on my choice. And God said, my son, you're standing on my choice. And in that is hope. Second question, why evangelize? If God has determined who will be saved, if he has chosen, then why evangelize? Why share the gospel? Why be aggressive? Why take risks? Why, why, why? Well, first, let's just state the obvious. I cannot say all of the reasons why we evangelize. Let me just say, first of all, God commands it. For the Christian, that should just be enough. But some of us get too intellectual to just read the straightforward commands and obey them. God commands it. But not only does God command it, Jesus modeled it. The one human being who should understand the election of God more than anyone else goes around. And what was his message? Repent and believe the gospel. How often I would have gathered you to myself, but you wouldn't come. He weeps over Jerusalem. He has compassion on those who are spiritually hopeless. If that's not enough, then remember this. First, it's God's design. It's God's design that we evangelize. I just commanded. This is the design. Look, when you go to Romans 9, you find one of the strongest statements about God's election that you will find anywhere in the Bible. And when Paul proposes what might be a potential uh, you know, argument against it, uh, the essential answer is, go ahead and put it up. I'm, I'm not going to go. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? In other words, creatures are meant to bow before the Creator, not bark at Him. Okay? The same apostle who writes this writes the next chapter, 
and says, It is my heart's desire and longing that they be saved. And he says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they call on him in whom they haven't believed? And how will they believe in them if they haven't heard? And how will they hear unless somebody preaches? And how about somebody preach unless we send? The same apostle understand that, yes, God's eternal design is to save his people. But do you know how he saves his people? through you and through me, preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. That's God's design. It's also Paul's motivation, by the way. In Acts chapter 18, Paul's in Corinth. He's facing opposition. The Lord exhorts him to stay steady. He says, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Why should Paul go on evangelizing? Why should he face persecution? Why should he become all things to all people? Why should he seek to save some? Why should he be calling people to repent and believe? Because God has many in that city. Gray Road? Why engage the world with the gospel? Why would we work to help Tim and Karen get to North Africa? Why would we call for generosity? Why would we call for urgency? Why? Because God has many in that nation. And they will be planted and grow through the work of the gospel. gospel is the rain that makes the seed of election spring to life in someone. Why do you need to engage your neighbors? Why should you engage your co-workers? Why should we pray for more opportunity? Why should we pray, God, give me Give me opportunities to share the gospel. Give me wisdom to see them. Give me courage to take them. Why invite people to church to hear the gospel? Why, why start a, a Bible study in your neighborhood or in your office or, or with a friend? Why read the Bible one-to-one with an unbeliever? Why pray for and seek and long for the day when we have seen so many converted that we need to plant a new church? Why? Because God has many in this city. God has many on the south side of Indianapolis. It concerns me that our effort to get the gospel to the ends of the earth have blinded us to the need to get the gospel to the end of the street. God does not simply have many in the unreached areas of the world. God has many right here. I just want you to think about that. Think about being part of God fulfilling His purposes in someone's life because you had the wisdom and the courage and the compassion to come along and share Christ and you got, your words got to be the Spirit-empowered water that sprung to life a new believer. There's something better we ought to be about? 
dear friends, I want to tell you, this is, this is the, the Bible democratizes the reaching of the nations. It does not rest in any people. It rests in me for certain. And, and that's part of why we want to have that combined Sunday school on March 18th to talk about a vision for the future of Gray Road. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, are you actively seeking to share your faith with unbelievers? And if you would say yes, be more specific. Who? When was the last time you talked to them? Steve Byers, who's the pastor up at Faith Church in Lafayette, faithful brother, believes in election, believes in evangelism, hardcore about both. He says he walks around Lafayette just assuming that everybody he meets is part of the elect. And nothing's going to stop him from sharing the gospel. And that whether it's through his conversation or somebody else, that God's purposes are actually bigger than he expects. bigger than he would naturally think of. Last question. So what? I mean, that rubber meets the road on as I wrestle about free will, the rubber meets the road on why I should evangelize, but is that really it? No, it's not. Why is it important to believe this truth? Why is it important for this to not just be an intellectual exercise? Why is it important? What are the practical implications for my life? So I'm just going to list several for you, and we're going to do this in rapid fire, and then I'm going to close us, all right? So rapid fire. Here we go. You ready? This matters for your praise. I mean, that is most directly connected to this text, isn't it? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing even as he chose us in him that God be blessed our motivation to praise our joy and praise grows we can better exalt Jesus in passionate worship when we remember our salvation rests on him and not on us assurance of our salvation our souls gain assurance and encouragement Assurance in doubt, encouragement to press on in trials when we know that our salvation rests on God and not on us. That the outcome of life is rooted in God and not on us. Also, pride is weakened and humility is fostered when I understand that my coming to Christ was secondary in terms of causes and God came to me first and set his love on me for no reason in fact right unconditional so first corinthians 1 says god chose what is foolish god chose what is weak god chose what is low and despised so that no human being might boast in the presence of god do you want to be a more humble person are you tired of recognizing pride in your interaction with others come to grips with god's Sovereign choice. 
My evangelism is empowered because my friend's response doesn't rest on me. My friend's response doesn't even rest on them. My friend's response rests on the God who raises the dead, who saves, whose arm is not so short that he cannot save. My prayers for the lost gain strength when I remember the one to whom I'm praying can sovereignly accomplish his, person of, his purpose of salvation for anyone I am praying for. My life purpose and my goals are no longer mine. You understand that? The answer of the Christian to what do you want to do with your life is what God says. Whatever else that looks like, whatever career that looks like, whatever job that looks like, whatever it is, I, my life is His, not my own. Why? Because God chose me for Himself. My affiliation with the local church, because of this truth, it is not up to me, it is up to God. Why? Because 1 Corinthians 12 says, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as He chose. Same word. He has ordained that we be arranged within a local body. That we don't simply go to church at Gray Road. We belong to Gray Road. That's where we need to come to. Church is not where you attend. Church is a family to which you belong. A life of personal holiness is necessary and possible because my growth in holiness, my blamelessness, is rooted in God's purposeful election and not my effort. And of course, missions. The mission of the church to engage the world. Listen, our effort, Tim... Our effort to send you to North Africa is not a hopeless effort. We are not just spinning our wheels, bro. You are not going to go there. You may not see what you want to see in your lifetime. But we have a longer vision than that, don't we? It's not hopeless. No matter how dark any part of the world is, the light of Jesus can penetrate it. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Twenty words that when we embrace them, our eyes open to the glory and the wonder and the majesty and the greatness and the goodness of God. And we praise Him for it. We bless God because He chose us. Let's pray.